0: CD 2 They lunched at a small eating house near the brass bridge, with the luggage nestling under the table. The food and wine, both far superior to Rinswin's normal fare, did much to relax him. Things weren't going to be too bad, he decided. A bit of invention and some quick thinking. That was all that was needed. Twoflower seemed to be thinking too. Looking reflectively into his wine cup, he said... Tavern fights are pretty common around here, I expect. Oh, fairly. No doubt fixtures and fittings get damaged. Fixtures? Oh, oh, I see. You mean like benches and whatnot. Yes, I suppose so. That must be upsetting for the innkeepers. I've never really thought about it. I suppose it must just be one of the risks of the job. Twoflower regarded him thoughtfully. "'I might be able to help there,' he said. "'Risks are my business. "'I say, this food is a bit greasy, isn't it?' "'You did say you wanted to try some typical more porky and food,' said Rincewind. "'What was that about risks?' "'Oh, I know all about risks. "'They're my business.' "'I thought that's what you said. "'I didn't believe it the first time either.' "'Oh, I don't take risks.' About the most exciting thing that happened to me was knocking some ink over. I assess risks, day after day. Do you know what the odds are against a house catching fire in the Red Triangle district of Bess Pelagic? Five hundred and thirty-eight to one. I calculated that, he added with a trace of pride. What? Rincewind tried to suppress a burp. What for? Excuse me. He helped himself to some more wine. For uh, Twoflower paused. I can't say it in trob, he said. I don't think the betrobby have a word for it. In my language we called it, he said a collection of outlandish syllables. Insuer ants, repeated Rincewind. That's a funny word. What does it mean? Well, suppose you have a ship loaded with, say, gold bars. It might run into storms or be taken by pirates. You don't want that to happen, so you take out an insurance ants poly-sea. I work out the odds against the cargo being lost based on weather reports and piracy records for the last 20 years. Then I add a bit, then you pay me some money based on those odds. And the bit... Rincewind said, waggling a finger solemnly, and then, if the cargo is lost, I reimburse you Reimburse pay you the value of your cargo, said twoflower patiently. I get it. it's like a bet, right? A wager in a way, I suppose, and you make money at this in sewer ants. it offers a return on investment, certainly. Wrapped in the warm yellow glow of the wine, Rinswin tried to think of in sewer ants in circle sea terms. I don't think I understand this in sewer ants, he said firmly, idly watching the world spin by magic now, magic, I understand. twoflower grinned, magic is one thing, and reflected sound of underground spirits is another. he said, "'What?' what "'That funny word you used,' said Rincewind impatiently. "'Reflected sound of underground spirits?' "'Never heard of it,' Twoflower tried to explain. "'Rincewind tried to understand. "'In the long afternoon they toured the city turnwise of the river. Twoflower led the way with the strange picture box "'slung on a strap around his neck. "'Rincewind trailed behind, whimpering at intervals "'and checking to see that his head was still there. "'A few others followed, too.' In a city where public executions, duels, fights, magical feuds, and strange events regularly punctuated the daily round, the inhabitants had brought the profession of interested bystander to a peak of perfection. They were, to a man, highly skilled gawpers. In any case, Twoflower was delightedly taking picture after picture of people engaged in what he described as typical activities, and since a quarter rhino would subsequently change hands for their trouble, a tale of bemused and happy nouveau riche was soon following him in case this madman exploded in a shower of gold. At the temple of the seven-handed Sek, a hasty convocation of priests and ritual heart transplant artisans agreed that the hundred-span high statue of Sek was altogether too holy to be made into a magic picture, but a payment of two rheinu left them astoundingly agreeing that perhaps he wasn't as holy as all that. A prolonged session at the whore pits produced a number of colourful and instructive pictures, a number of which Rincewind concealed about his person for detailed perusal in private. As the fumes cleared from his brain, he began to speculate seriously as to how the iconograph worked. Even a failed wizard knew that some substances were sensitive to light. Perhaps the glass plates were treated by some arcane process that froze the light that passed through them. Something like that, anyway. Rincewind often suspected that there was something somewhere that was better than magic. He was usually disappointed. However, he soon took every opportunity to operate the box. Tufla was only too pleased to allow this, since that enabled the little man to appear in his own pictures. It was at this point that Rincewind noticed something strange. Possession of the box conferred a kind of power on the wielder, which was that anyone confronted with the hypnotic glass eye would submissively obey the most peremptory orders about stance and expression. It was while he was thus engaged in the plaza of broken moons that disaster struck. Twoflower had posed alongside a bewildered charm-seller, his crowd of newfound admirers watching him with interest in case he did something humorously lunatic. Rincewind got down on one knee, the better to arrange the picture, and pressed the enchanted lever. The box said... It's no good. I've run out of pink. A hitherto unnoticed door opened in front of his eyes. A small green and hideously warty humanoid figure leaned out, pointed at a colour-encrusted palette in one clawed hand, and screamed at him. No pink, see, screeched the homunculus. No good you going on pressing the lever when there's no pink, is there? If you wanted pink, you shouldn't have... Took all those pictures of young ladies, should you? It's monochrome from now on, friend. All right. All right, yes, yeah, sure, said Rincewind. In one dim corner of the little box, he thought he could see an easel and a tiny unmade bed. He hoped he couldn't. So long as that's understood, said the imp and shut the door. Rincewind thought he could hear the muffled sound of grumbling and the scrape of a stool being dragged across the floor. Um, two he began and looked up. Two flower had vanished. As Rincewind stared at the crowd, with sensations of prickly horror travelling up his spine, there came a gentle prod in the small of his back. "'Turn without haste,' said a voice like black silk. "'Or kiss your kidneys goodbye.' The crowd watched with interest. It was turning out to be quite a good day. Rincewind turned slowly, feeling the point of the sword scrape along his ribs. At the other end of the blade, he recognised Stren Withel, thief, cruel swordsman, disgruntled contender for the title of worst man in the world. Hi, he said weakly. A few yards away, he noticed a couple of unsympathetic men raising the lid of the luggage and pointing excitedly at the bags of gold. Withel smiled. It made an unnerving effect on his scar-crossed face. I know you, he said. A gutter wizard. What is that thing? Rincewind became aware that the lid of the luggage was trembling slightly, although there was no wind. And he was still holding the picture box. This, it uh, makes pictures, he said brightly. Hey, just hold that smile, will you? He backed away quickly and pointed the box. For a moment, Withel hesitated. What? he said. That's fine, Um, hold it just like that, said Rincewind. The thief paused, then growled, and swung his sword back. There was a snap and a duet of horrible screams. Rincewind did not glance round for fear of the terrible things he might see, and by the time Withill looked for him again, he was on the other side of the plaza and still accelerating. The albatross descended in wide, slow sweeps that ended in an undignified flurry of feathers and a thump as it landed heavily on its platform in the patrician's bird garden. The custodian of the birds, dozing in the sun and hardly expecting a long-distance message so soon after this morning's arrival, jerked to his feet and looked up. A few moments later, he was scuttling through the palace's corridors, holding the message capsule, and, owing to carelessness brought on by surprise, sucking at the nasty beak wound on the back of his hand. Rincewind pounded down an alley, paying no heed to the screams of rage coming from the picture box, and cleared a high wall with his frayed robe flapping around him like the feathers of a dishevelled jackdaw. He landed in the forecourt of a carpet shop, scattering the merchandise and customers, dived through its rear exit, trailing apologies, skidded down another alley, and stopped, teetering dangerously, just as he was about to plunge unthinkingly into the ankh. There are said to be some mystic rivers, one drop of which can steal a man's life away. After its turbid passage through the Twin Cities, the Ark could have been one of them. In the distance, the cries of rage took on a shrill note of terror. Rincewind looked around desperately for a boat, or a handhold up the sheer walls on either side of him. He was trapped. Unbidden, the spell welled up in his mind. It was perhaps untrue to say that he had learned it. It had learned him. The episode had led to his expulsion from the Unseen University, because, for a bet... He had dared to open the pages of the last remaining copy of the creator's own grimoire, the Octavo, while the university librarian was otherwise engaged. The spell had leapt out of the page and instantly burrowed deeply into his mind, from whence even the combined talents of the faculty of medicine had been unable to coax it. Precisely which one it was, they were also unable to ascertain, except that it was one of the eight basic spells that were intricately interwoven with the very fabric of time and space itself. Since then, it had been showing a worrying tendency, when Rincewind was feeling run down, or especially threatened, to try to get itself said. He clenched his teeth together, but the first syllable forced itself around the corner of his mouth. His left hand raised involuntary, and as the magical force whirled him round, ...began to give off octarine sparks. The luggage hurtled around the corner, its several hundred knees moving like pistons. Rincewind gaped. The spell died unsaid. The box didn't appear to be hampered in any way by the ornamental rug draped roguishly over it... ...nor by the thief hanging by one arm from the lid. It was, in a very real sense, a dead weight. Further along the lid were the remains of two fingers owner unknown the luggage halted a few feet from the wizard and after a moment retracted its legs it had no eyes that Rincewind could see but he was nevertheless sure that it was staring at him expectantly "Shoo," he said weakly it didn't budge but the lid creaked open releasing the dead thief Rincewind remembered about the gold presumably the box had to have a master In the absence of two flower, had it adopted him? The tide was turning, and he could see debris drifting downstream in the yellow afternoon light towards the river gate, a mere hundred yards downstream. It was the work of a moment to let the dead thief join them. Even if it was found later, it would hardly cause comment, and the sharks in the estuary were used to solid, regular meals. Rincewind watched the body drift away, and considered his next move. The luggage would probably float. All he had to do was wait until dusk, and then go out with the tide. There were plenty of wild places downstream where he could wade ashore, and then, well, if the patrician really had sent out word about him, then a change of clothing and a shave would take care of that. In any case, there were other lands, and he had facility for languages. Let him but get to Chimera, or Gonim, or Ekalpon, and half a dozen armies couldn't bring him back. And then, wealth, comfort, security... There was, of course, the problem of two-flower. Rincewind allowed himself a moment's sadness. "'It could be worse,' he said by way of farewell. "'It could be me.' "'It was when he tried to move that he found his robe was caught on some obstruction. "'By craning his neck, he found that the edge of it was being gripped firmly by the luggages' lid. "'Ah, Gorefowl,' said the patrician pleasantly, Come in, sit down. Can I press you to a candid starfish? I am yours to command, master, said the old man calmly, save perhaps in the matter of preserved echinoderms. The patrician shrugged and indicated the scroll on the table. Read that, he said. Gorfell picked up the parchment and raised one eyebrow slightly when he saw the familiar ideograms of the Golden Empire. He read in silence for perhaps a minute, and then turned the scroll over to examine minutely the seal on the obverse. "'You are famed as a student of Empire Affairs,' said the patrician. "'Can you explain this?' "'Knowledge in the matter of the empire lies less in noting particular events "'than in studying a certain cast of mind,' said the old diplomat. "'The message is curious, yes, but not surprising.' "'This morning the emperor instructed,' the patrician allowed himself the luxury of a scowl, "'instructed me, gorfal, to protect this two-flower person.' now it seems i must have him killed you don't find that surprising no the emperor is no more than a boy he is idealistic keen a god to his people whereas this afternoon's letter is unless i am very much mistaken from nine turning mirrors the grand vizier "'He has grown old in the service of several emperors. "'He regards them as a necessary but tiresome ingredient "'in the successful running of the empire. "'He does not like things out of place. "'The empire was not built by allowing things to get out of place. "'That is his view.' "'I begin to see,' said the patrician. "'Quite so,' Gorfowl smiled into his beard.' This tourist is a thing that is out of place. After acceding to his master's wishes, nine turning mirrors would, I am quite sure, make his own arrangements with a view to ensuring that one wanderer would not be allowed to return home, bringing, perhaps, the disease of dissatisfaction. The Empire likes people to stay where it puts them. So much more convenient, then, if this two-flower, disappears for good in the barbarian lands, meaning here, master. "'And your advice?' said the patrician. Gorfal shrugged. "'Merely that you should do nothing. Matters will undoubtedly resolve themselves. However,' he scratched an ear thoughtfully, "'perhaps the Assassin's Guild?' "'Ah, yes,' said the patrician. "'The Assassins Guild. "'Who is their president at the moment?' "'Zlorf Flannelfoot, master.' "'Have a word with him, will you?' "'Quite so, master.' "'The patrician nodded. "'It was all rather a relief. "'He agreed with nine turning mirrors. "'Life was difficult enough. "'People ought to stay where they were put.' "'Brilliant constellations shone down on the Discworld.' One by one, the traders shuttered their shops. One by one, the gonoffs, thieves, fire-wirers, whores, illusionists, backsliders and second-story men awoke and breakfasted. Wizards went about their polydimensional affairs. Tonight saw the conjunction of two powerful planets, and already the air over the magical quarter was hazy with early spells. "'Look,' said Rincewind, "'this isn't getting us anywhere.' He inched sideways. The luggage followed faithfully, lid half-open and menacing.' Rincewind briefly considered making a desperate leap to safety. The lid smacked in anticipation. In any case, he told himself with sinking heart, the damned thing would only follow him again. It had that dogged look about it. Even if he managed to get to a horse, he had a nasty suspicion that it would follow him at its own pace. Endlessly, swimming rivers and oceans, gaining slowly every night while he had to stop to sleep and then one day in some exotic city and years hence, he'd hear the sound of hundreds of tiny feet accelerating down the road behind him. "'You've got the wrong man,' he moaned. "'It's not my fault. I didn't kidnap him.' The box moved forward slightly. Now there was just a narrow strip of greasy jetty between Rincewind's heels and the river. A flash of precognition told him that the box would be able to swim faster than he could. He tried not to imagine what it would be like to drown in the Ankh. ''It won't stop until you give in, you know,'' said a small voice, conversationally. Rincewind looked down at the iconograph, still hanging around his neck. Its trapdoor was open, and the homunculus was leaning against the frame, smoking a pipe and watching the proceedings with amusement. ''I'll take you in with me at least,'' said Rincewind, through gritted teeth. The imp took the pipe out of his mouth. ''What did you say?'' he said. I said I'll take you in with me, damn it. Suit yourself, the imp tapped the side of the box meaningfully. We'll see who sinks first. The luggage yawned and moved forward a fraction of an inch. Oh, all right, said Rincewind irritably, but you'll have to give me time to think. The luggage backed off slowly. Rincewind edged his way back onto reasonably safe land and sat down with his back against a wall. Across the river, the lights of Ark City glowed. You're a wizard, said the picture imp. You'll think of some way to find him. Not much of a wizard, I'm afraid. You can just jump down on everyone and turn them into worms, the imp added encouragingly, ignoring this last remark. No, turning to animals is an eighth-level spell. I never even completed my training. I only know one spell. Well, that'll do. I doubt it said Rincewind hopelessly. What does it do then? Can't tell you. Don't really want to talk about it. But frankly, he sighed, no spells are much good. It takes three months to commit even a simple one to memory, and then once you've used it, poof, it's gone. That's what's so stupid about the whole magic thing, you know. You spend twenty years learning the spell that makes nude virgins appear in your bedroom, and then you're so poisoned by quicksilver fumes and half blind from reading old grimoires that you can't remember what happens next. I never thought of it like that, said the imp. Hey, look, this is all wrong. When Two Flowers said they'd got better kind of magic in the Empire, I thought, I thought... The imp looked at him expectantly. Rincewind cursed himself. Well, if you must know, I thought he didn't mean magic. Not as such. What else is there, then? Rincewind began to feel really wretched. I don't know, he said. A better way of doing things, I suppose. Something with a bit of sense in it. Harnessing, harnessing the lightning or something. The imp gave him a kind but pitying look. Lightning is the spears hurled by the thunder giants when they fight, it said gently. Established meteorological fact. You can't harness it. I know, said Rincewind miserably. That's the flaw in the argument, of course. The imp nodded and disappeared into the depths of the iconograph. A few moments later, Rincewind smelled frying bacon. He waited until his stomach couldn't stand the strain anymore and rapped on the box. The imp reappeared. I've been thinking about what you said, it said before Rincewind could open his mouth. And even if you could get a harness on it, how could you get it to pull a cart? What the hell are you talking about? Lightning. It just goes up and down. You'd want it to go along, not up and down. Anyway, it'd probably burn through the harness. I don't care about the lightning. How can I think on an empty stomach? Eat something, then. That's logic. How? Every time I move, that damn box flexes its hinges at me. The luggage, on cue, gaped widely. See? It's not trying to bite you, said the imp. There's food in there. You're no use to it, starved. Rincewind peered into the dark recesses of the luggage. There were indeed among the chaos of boxes and bags of gold, several bottles and packages in oiled paper. He gave a cynical laugh, mooched around the abandoned jetty until he found a piece of wood about the right length, wedged it as politely as possible in the gap between the lid and the box, and pulled out one of the flat packages. It held biscuits that turned out to be as hard as diamond wood. Bloody hell! He muttered, nursing his teeth. Captain Eight Panthers' travellers' digestives, then said the imp from the doorway to his box. Saved many a life at sea, they have. Oh, sure. Do you use them as a raft, or just throw them to the sharks and sort of watch them sink? What's in the bottles? Poison. Water. But there's water everywhere. Why do you want to bring water? Trust. Trust. Yes. ''That's what he didn't. The water, here, see?'' Rincewind opened a bottle. The liquid inside might have been water. It had a flat, empty flavour with no trace of life. ''Neither taste nor smell,'' he grumbled. The luggage gave a little creak, attracting his attention. With a lazy air of calculated menace, it shut its lids slowly, grinding Rincewind's impromptu wedge like a dry loaf. ''All right, all right,'' he said. ''I'm thinking.'' Imor's headquarters were in the leaning tower at the junction of Rhyme Street and Frost Alley. At midnight, the solitary guard leaning in the shadows looked up at the conjoining planets and wondered idly what change in his fortunes they might herald. There was the faintest of sounds, as of a gnat yawning. The guard glanced down at the deserted street and now caught the glimmer of moonlight on something lying in the mud a few yards away. He picked it up. The lunar light gleamed on gold, and his intake of breath was almost loud enough to echo down the alleyway. There was a slight sound again, and another coin rolled into the gutter on the other side of the street. By the time he had picked it up, there was another one, a little way off and still spinning. Gold was, he remembered, said to be formed from the crystallized light of stars. Until now, he had never believed it to be true that something as heavy as gold could fall naturally from the sky. As he drew level with the opposite alley-mouth, some more fell. It was still in its bag, there was an awful lot of it, and Rincewind brought it down heavily onto his head. When the guard came to, he found himself looking up into the wild-eyed face of a wizard, who was menacing his throat with a sword. In the darkness, too, something was gripping his leg. It was the disconcerting sort of grip that suggested that the gripper could grip a whole lot harder if he wanted to. "'Where is he, the rich foreigner?' "'hissed the wizard, quickly. "'What's holding my leg?' said the man, "'with a note of terror in his voice. "'He tried to wriggle free. "'The pressure increased. "'You wouldn't want to know,' said Rincewind. "'Pay attention, please. "'Where's the foreigner?' "'Not here. "'They've got him at Broadman's place. "'Everyone's looking for him. "'You're Rincewind, aren't you? "'The box, the box that bites people. "'Oh, no, no, please!' "'Rincewind had gone.' The guard felt the unseen leg-gripper release his, or, as he was beginning to fear, its, hold. Then, as he tried to pull himself to his feet, something big and heavy and square cannoned into him out of the dark and plunged off after the wizard. Something with hundreds of tiny feet. With only his homemade phrasebook to help him, Twoflower was trying to explain the mysteries of in sewer ants to Broadman. The fat innkeeper was listening intently, his little black eyes glittering. From the other end of the table, Imor watched with mild amusement, occasionally feeding one of his ravens with scraps from his plate. Beside him, Withel paced up and down. You fret too much, said Imor, without taking his eyes from the two men opposite him. I can feel it, Stren. Who would dare attack us here? And the gutter wizard will come. He's too much of a coward not to, and he'll try to bargain, and we shall have him, and the gold, and the chest. Withell's one eye glared, and he smacked a fist into the palm of a black-gloved hand. Who would have thought that there were so much sapient pearwood in the whole of the disc, he said. How could we have known? You fret too much, Stren. I'm sure you can do better this time, said Emor pleasantly. The lieutenant snorted in disgust and strode off round the room to bully his men. Imor carried on watching the tourist. It was strange, but the little man didn't seem to realise the seriousness of his position. Imor had on several occasions seen him look around the room with an expression of deep satisfaction. He had also been talking for ages to Broadman, and Imor had seen a piece of paper change hands, and Broadman had given the foreigner some coins. It was strange. When Broadman got up and waddled past Imore's chair, the Thiefmaster's arm shot out like a steel spring and grabbed the fat man by his apron. "'What was all that about, friend?' asked Imore quietly. "'Nothing, Imore, just uh, private business-like.' "'There are no secrets between friends, Broadman?' "'Yeah, well, I'm not sure about it myself, really. It's, "'It's a sort of a bet, you see,' said the innkeeper nervously. In sewer ants, it's called. It's like a bet that the broken drum won't get burned down." Imor held the man's gaze until Broadman twitched in fear and embarrassment. Then the thief-master laughed. This worm an old tinder pile, he said, the man must be mad. Yes, but mad with money, he says, now he's got the, um. I can't remember the word, begins with a P. It's what you might call the stake, Bunny. The people he works for in the Agatean Empire will pay up if the broken drum burns down. Not that I hope it does burn down. The broken drum, I mean. I mean, it's like a home to me, is the drum. Not entirely stupid, are you? Said Imore, and pushed the innkeeper away. The door slammed back on its hinges and thudded into the wall. ''Hey, that's my door!'' screamed Broadman. Then he realised who was standing at the top of the steps and ducked behind the table, a mere shaving of time before a short black dart sped across the room and thunked into the woodwork. Imor moved his hand carefully and poured out another flagon of beer. ''Won't you join me, Zlorf? he said levelly. ''And put that sword away, Stren. Zloth Fannelfoot is our friend.'' The president of the Assassin's Guild spun his short blowgun dexterously and slotted it into its holster in one smooth movement. "'Strand,' said Imor. The black-clad thief hissed and sheathed his sword, but he kept his hand on the hilt and his eyes on the Assassin. That wasn't easy. Promotion in the Assassin's Guild was by competitive examination, the practical being the most important, indeed the only part. Thus Zlorf's broad, honest face was a welt of scar tissue, the result of many a close encounter. It probably hadn't been all that good-looking in any case. It was said that Zlorf had chosen a profession in which dark hoods, cloaks and nocturnal prowlings figured largely because there was a day-fearing trollish streak in his parentage. People who said this in earshot of Zlorf tended to carry their ears home in their hats. He strolled down the stairs, followed by a number of assassins. When he was directly in front of Ymor, he said... I've come for the tourist. Is it any business of yours, Zlorf? Yes. Grinjo. Ermond. Take him. Two of the assassins stepped forward. Then Stren was in front of them, his sword appearing to materialise an inch from their throats without having to pass through the intervening air. Possibly I could only kill one of you. He murmured, but I suggest you ask yourselves which one. Look up, Zloth, said Imor. A row of yellow, baleful eyes looked down from the darkness among the rafters. One step more, and you'll leave here with fewer eyeballs than you came with, said the thief master. So sit down and have a drink, Zloth, and let's talk about this sensibly. I thought we had an agreement. "'You don't rob, I don't kill. Not for payment, that is,' he added after a pause. Zlorf took the proffered beer. "'So,' he said, "'I'll kill him, then you rob him. "'Is he that funny-looking one over there?' "'Yes.' Zlorf stared at Two Flower, who grinned at him. He shrugged. He seldom wasted time wondering why people wanted other people dead, it was just a living. ''Who is your client, may I ask?'' said Imor. Zlof held up a hand. ''Please,'' he protested. ''Professional etiquette.'' ''Of course.'' Uh, ''By the way...'' ''Yes.'' ''I believe I have a couple of guards outside.'' ''Had.'' ''And some others in the doorway across the street.'' Formerly, And two bowmen on the roof? A flicker of doubt passed across Zlorf's face, like the last shaft of sunlight over a badly ploughed field. The door flew open, badly damaging the assassin who was standing beside it. Stop doing that, shrieked Broadman from under the table. Zlorf and Imor stared up at the figure on the threshold. It was short, fat and richly dressed, very richly dressed. There were a number of tall, big shapes looming behind it. Very big, threatening shapes. Who's that? said Sloth. I know him, said Imor. His name's Rupf. He runs the groaning platter tavern down by Brass Bridge. Stren, remove him. Rupf held up a beringed hand. Strendwithell hesitated halfway to the door as several very large trolls ducked under the doorway and stood on either side of the fat man, blinking in the light. Muscles the size of melons bulged in forearms like flower sacks. Each troll held a double-headed axe between thumb and forefinger. Broadman erupted from cover, his face suffused with rage. Out! he screamed. Get those trolls out of here! No one moved. The room was suddenly quiet. Broadman looked around quickly. It began to dawn on him just what he had said. And to whom? A whimper escaped from his lips. Glad to be free, he reached the doorway to his cellars, just as one of the trolls, with a lazy flick of one ham-sized hand, sent his axe whirling across the room. The slam of the door and its subsequent splitting as the axe hit it merged into one sound. Bloody hell, exclaimed Zlor Flannelfoot. "'What do you want?' said Imor. "'I am here on behalf of the Guild of Merchants and Traders,' said Rorphe, evenly. "'To protect our interests, you might say, meaning the little man.' Imor wrinkled his brows. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'I thought I heard you say the Guild of Merchants.' And traders, agreed Rupf, Behind him now, in addition to more trolls, were several humans that Imor vaguely recognised. He had seen them maybe behind counters and bars, shadowy figures usually, easily ignored, easily forgotten. At the back of his mind a bad feeling began to grow. He thought about how it might be to be, say, a fox confronted with an angry sheep. A sheep, moreover, that could afford to employ wolves. How long has this... Uh, ''Guild been in existence, may I ask?'' he said. ''Since this afternoon,'' said Rupf. ''I'm vice guildmaster in charge of tourism, you know.'' Uh, ''What is this tourism of which you speak?'' ''Er, uh, we are not quite sure,'' said Rourpf. An old bearded man poked his head over the guildmaster's shoulder and cackled, Speaking on behalf of the wine-sellers of Moorpork, tourism means business, see? Well, said Imor coldly. Well, said Röpf, we're protecting our interests, like I said. Thieves out, thieves out, cackled his elderly companion. Several others took up the chant. Zlorf grinned. And assassins, chanted the old man. Zlorf growled. "'Stands to reason,' said Frupp. "'People robbing and murdering all over the place? "'What sort of impression visitor visitors going to take away? "'You come all the way to see our fine city "'with its many points of historical and civic interest, "'also many quaint customs, "'and you wake up dead in some back alley, "'or as it might be floating down the Ankh. "'How are you going to tell all your friends "'what a great time you're having?' Let's face it, you've got to move with the times. Zlorf and Imor met each other's gaze. We have, have we? said Imor. Then let us move, brother, agreed Zlorf. In one movement he brought his blowgun to his mouth and sent a dart hissing towards the nearest troll. It spun around, hurling its axe, which whirred over the assassin's head and buried itself in a luckless thief behind him. Rorpf ducked, allowing a troll behind him to raise its huge iron crossbow and fire a spear-length quarrel into the nearest assassin. That was the start. It has been remarked before that those who are sensitive to radiations in the far octarin, the eighth colour, the pigment of the imagination, can see things that others cannot. Thus it was that Rincewind, hurrying through the crowded, flare-lit evening bazaars of more pork, with the luggage trundling behind him, jostled a tall, dark figure, turned to deliver a few suitable curses, and beheld death. It had to be death. No one else went around with empty eye sockets. And of course the scythe over one shoulder was another clue. As Rincewind stared in horror, a courting couple, laughing at some private joke, walked straight through the apparition without appearing to notice it. Death, insofar as it was possible in a face with no movable features, looked surprised. Rincewind? Um, said Rincewind, trying to back away from that eyeless stare. But why are you here? Boom, boom, went crypt lids in the worm haunted fastness under old mountains. Um, why not? said Rincewind. Anyway, I'm sure you've got lots to do, so <laughs> if you'll just uh... I was surprised that you jostled me, Rincewind, for I have an appointment with thee this very night. Oh, no, um, not- Of course, what's so bloody vexing about the whole business is that I was expecting to meet thee in Psephoporolis. But that's five hundred miles away. You don't have to tell me. The whole system's got screwed up again, I can see that. Look, there's no chance of you... Rincewind backed away, hands spread protectively in front of him. The dried fish salesman on a nearby stall watched this madman with interest. Not a chance! I could lend you a very fast horse. No! It won't hurt a bit. No! Rincewind turned and ran. Death watched him go and shrugged bitterly. "'Sod you, then,' he turned and noticed the fish salesman. With a snarl, Death reached out a bony finger and stopped the man's heart, but he didn't take much pride in it. Then Death remembered what was due to happen later that night. It would not be true to say that Death smiled, because in any case his features were perforce frozen in a calcareous grin. But he hummed a little tune, cheery as a plague pit, and pausing only to extract the life from a passing mayfly, and one-ninth of the lives from a cat cowering under the fish stall, all cats can see into the octarine. Death turned on his heel and set off towards the broken drum. Short Street, Moorpork, is in fact one of the longest in the city. Filigree Street crosses its turnwise end in the manner of the crosspiece of a T, and the broken drum is so placed that it looks down the full length of the street. At the furthermost end of Short Street, a dark oblong rose on hundreds of tiny legs and started to run. At first it moved at no more than a lumbering trot, but by the time it was halfway up the street it was moving arrow-fast. A darker shadow inched its way along one of the walls of the drum, a few yards from the two trolls who were guarding the door. Rincewind was sweating. If they heard the faint clinking of the specially prepared bags at his belt... One of the trolls tapped his colleague on the shoulder, producing a noise like two pebbles being knocked together. He pointed down the starlit street. Rincewind darted from his hiding place, turned, and hurled his burden through the drum's nearest window. Withel saw it arrive. The bag arced across the room, turning slowly in the air, and burst on the edge of a table. A moment later, gold coins were rolling across the floor, spinning, glittering. The room was suddenly silent. ...save for the tiny noises of gold and the whimpers of the wounded. With a curse, Withel dispatched the assassin he had been fighting. ''It's a trick! he screamed. ''No one move!'' Three score men and a dozen trolls froze in mid-grope. Then, for the third time, the door burst open. Two trolls hurried through it, slammed it behind them... ...dropped the heavy bar across it and fled down the stairs. Outside, there was a sudden crescendo of running feet... ...and for the last time, the door opened... In fact, it exploded, the great wooden bar being hurled far across the room, and the frame itself giving way. Door and frame landed on a table which flew into splinters. It was then that the frozen fighters noticed that there was something else in the pile of wood. It was a box, shaking itself madly to free itself of the smashed timber around it. Rincewind appeared in the ruined doorway, hurling another of his gold grenades. It smashed into a wall, showering coins. Down in the cellar, Broadman looked up, muttered to himself, and carried on with his work. His entire Spindlewinter's supply of candles had already been strewn on the floor, mixed with his store of kindling wood. Now he was attacking a barrel of lamp oil. Insurance, he muttered. Oil gushed out and swirled around his feet. Withell stormed across the floor, his face a mask of rage. Rincewind took careful aim and caught the thief full in the chest with a bag of gold. But now Emor was shouting and pointing an accusing finger. A raven swooped down from its perch in the rafters and dived at the wizard, talons open and gleaming. It didn't make it. At about the halfway point, the luggage leapt from its bed of splinters, gaped briefly in midair, and snapped shut. It landed lightly. Rincewind saw its lid open again, slightly. Just far enough for a tongue, large as a palm leaf, red as mahogany, to lick up a few errant feathers. At the same moment, the giant candle wheel fell from the ceiling, plunging the room into gloom. Rincewind, coiling himself like a spring, gave a standing jump and grasped a beam, swinging himself up into the relative safety of the roof with a strength that amazed him. Exciting, isn't it? said a voice by his ear. Down below, thieves, assassins, trolls and merchants all realised at about the same moment that they were in a room made treacherous of foothold by gold coins and containing something among the suddenly menacing shapes in the semi-darkness that was absolutely horrible. As one they made for the door, but had two dozen different recollections of its exact position. High above the chaos, Rincewind stared at Twoflower. ''Did you cut the lights down?'' he hissed. ''Yes.'' ''How come you're up here?'' ''I thought I'd better not get in everybody's way.'' Rincewind considered this. There didn't seem to be much he could say. Twoflower added, ''A real brawl, better than anything I'd imagined.'' "'Do you think I ought to thank them, or did you arrange it?' "'Rincewind looked at him blankly. "'I think we ought to be getting down now,' he said hollowly. "'Everyone's gone.' "'He dragged Twoflower across the littered floor and up the steps. "'They burst out into the tail end of the night. "'There were still a few stars, but the moon was down, "'and there was a faint grey glow to Rimwood. "'Most important, the street was empty.' "'Rincewind sniffed. "'Can you smell oil?' he said. Then, Withel stepped out of the shadows and tripped him up. At the top of the cellar steps, Broadman knelt down and fumbled in his tinderbox. It turned out to be damp. "'I'll kill that bloody cat!' he muttered, and groped for the spare box that was normally on the ledge by the door. It was missing. Broadman said a bad word. A lighted taper appeared in midair right beside him. "'Here, take this.' "'Thanks!' Said Broadman. Don't mention it. Broadman went to throw the taper down the steps. His hand paused in midair. He looked at the taper, his brow furrowing. Then he turned around and held the taper up to illuminate the scene. It didn't shed much light, but it did give the darkness a shape. Oh, no, he breathed. But yes, said Death. Rincewind rolled. For a moment, he thought Withel was going to spit him where he lay, but it was worse than that. He was waiting for him to get up. ''I see you have a sword, wizard,'' he said quietly. ''I suggest you rise, and we shall see how well you use it.'' Rincewind stood up as slowly as he dared, and drew from his belt the short sword he'd taken from the guard a few hours and a hundred years ago. It was a short, blunt affair compared to Withel's hair-thin rapier. ''But I I don't know how to use a sword,'' he wailed. ''Good.'' ''You know that wizards can't be killed by edged weapons,'' said Rincewind desperately. Withell smiled coldly. ''So I have heard,'' he said. ''I look forward to putting it to the test,'' he lunged. Rincewind caught the thrust by sheer luck, jerked his hand away in shock, deflected the second stroke by coincidence, and took the third one through his robe at heart height. There was a clink. Withel's snarl of triumph died in his throat. He drew the sword out and prodded again at the wizard, who was rigid with terror and guilt. There was another clink, and gold coins began to drop out of the hem of the wizard's robe. So you bleed gold, do you? hissed Withel. But have you got gold concealed in that raggedy beard, you little... As his sword went back for his final sweep, the sullen glow that had been growing in the doorway of the broken drum flickered, dimmed, and erupted into a roaring fireball that sent the walls billowing outward and carried the roof a hundred feet into the air before bursting through it in a gout of red-hot tiles. Withel stared at the boiling flames, unnerved, and Rincewind leapt. He ducked under the thief's sword arm and brought his own blade around in an arc so incompetently misjudged that it hit the man flat first and jolted out of the wizard's hand. Sparks and droplets of flaming oil rained down as Withel reached out with both gauntleted hands and grabbed Rincewind's neck, forcing him down. You did this! he screamed. You and your box of trickery! His thumb found Rincewind's windpipe. This is it, the wizard thought. Wherever I'm going, it can't be worse than here. Excuse me, said Twoflower. Rincewind felt the grip lessen, and now Withel was slowly getting up, a look of absolute hatred on his face. A glowing ember landed on the wizard. He brushed it off hurriedly and scrambled to his feet. Twoflower was behind Withel, holding the man's own needle-sharp sword with the point resting in the small of the thief's back. Rincewind's eyes narrowed. He reached into his robe then withdrew his hand, bunched into a fist. "'Don't move,' he said. "'Am I doing this right?' asked Twoflower anxiously. "'He says he'll skewer your liver if you move,' Rincewind translated freely. "'I doubt it,' said Withel. "'Bet?' "'No.' As Withel teased himself to turn on the tourist, Rincewind lashed out and caught the thief on the jaw. Withel stared at him in amazement for a moment and then quietly toppled into the mud. The wizard uncurled his stinging fist and the roll of gold coins slipped between his throbbing fingers. He looked down at the recumbent thief. Good grief, he gasped. He looked up and yelled as another ember landed on his neck. Flames were racing along the rooftops on either side of the street. All around him people were hurling possessions from windows and dragging horses from smoking stables. Another explosion in the white-hot volcano that was the drum sent a whole marble mantelpiece scything overhead. "'The Widdershin Gate's the nearest!' Rincewind shouted above the crackle of collapsing rafters. "'Come on!' He grabbed Two Flower's reluctant arm and dragged him down the street. "'My luggage! Blast your luggage! Stay here much longer and you'll go where you don't need luggage! "'Come on!' screamed Rincewind. They jogged on through the crowd of frightened people leaving the area, while the wizard took great mouthfuls of cool dawn air. Something was puzzling him. "'I'm sure all the candles went out,' he said. "'So how did the drum catch fire?' "'I don't know,' moaned Twoflower. "'It's terrible, Rincewind. We were getting along so well, too.' Rincewind stopped in astonishment, so that another refugee cannoned into him and spun away with an oath. "'Getting on?' "'Yes, a great bunch of fellows. "'I thought language was a bit of a problem, "'but they were so keen for me to join their party "'they just wouldn't take no for an answer. "'Really friendly people, I thought.' "'Rincewind started to correct him, "'then realised he didn't know how to begin. "'It'll be a blow for old Broadman. "'Twoflower continued. "'Still, he was wise. "'I've still got the rhino he paid for his first premium.' "'Rincewind didn't know the meaning of the word premium,' but his mind was working fast. ''You in-seward the drum,'' he said. ''You bet, broadman, it wouldn't catch fire?'' ''Oh yes, standard valuation, two hundred rhino. Why'd you ask?'' Rincewind turned and stared at the flames racing towards them, and wondered how much of more pork could be bought for two hundred rhino. Quite a large piece, he decided. Only not now, not the way those flames were moving. He glanced down at the tourist. You, he began, and searched his memory for the worst word in the Trob tongue. The happy little bit didn't really know how to swear properly. You, he repeated. Another hurrying figure bumped into him, narrowly missing him with the blade over its shoulder. Rinswin's tortured temper exploded. You little such a one who, while wearing a copper nose ring, stands in a footpath atop Mount Rua 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 during a heavy thunderstorm and shouts that Alohura, goddess of lightning, has the facial features of a diseased Uluruahua root. Just doing my job, said the figure, stalking away. Every word fell as heavily as slabs of marble. Moreover, Rincewind was certain that he was the only one who heard them. He grabbed two flour again. Let's get out of here he suggested. One interesting side effect of the fire in Ankh-Morpork concerns the in ants policy, which left the city through the ravaged roof of the broken drum, was wafted high into the Discworld's atmosphere on the ensuing thermal, and came to earth several days and a few thousand miles away on an Uluruaha bush in the Bitrobe Islands. The simple, laughing islanders subsequently worshipped it as a god, much to the amusement of their more sophisticated neighbours. Strangely enough, the rainfall and harvests in the next few years were almost supernaturally abundant, and this led to a research team being dispatched to the islands by the minor religions faculty of the Unseen University. Their verdict was that it only went to show. The fire, driven by the wind, spread out from the drum faster than a man could walk. The timbers of the Widdershin Gate were already on fire when Rincewind, his face blistered and reddened from the flames, reached them. By now, he and Twoflower were on horseback, mounts hadn't been that hard to obtain. A wily merchant had asked fifty times their worth, and had been left gaping when one thousand times their worth had been pressed into his hands. They rode through just before the first of the big gate timbers descended in an explosion of sparks. Moorpork was already a cauldron of flame. As they galloped up the red-lit road, Rincewind glanced sideways at his travelling companion, currently trying hard to learn to ride a horse. Bloody hell, he thought. He's alive. Me too. Who'd have thought it? Perhaps there is something in this reflected sound of underground spirits. It was a cumbersome phrase. Rinswin tried to get his tongue around the thick syllables that were the word in Two Flowers' own language. Echolyrics, he tried. Echrogonothics. Echognomics. That would do. That sounded about right. Several hundred yards downriver from the last smouldering suburb of the city, a strangely rectangular and apparently heavily waterlogged object touched the mud on the Widdershin bank. Immediately it sprouted numerous legs and scrabbled for a purchase. Hauling itself to the top of the bank, the luggage streaked with soot, stained with water and very, very angry, shook itself and took its bearings. Then it moved away at a brisk trot, a small and incredibly ugly imp that was perching on its lid, watching the scenery with interest. Bravd looked at the weasel and raised his eyebrows. And that's it, said Rincewind. The luggage caught up with us, don't ask me how. Is there any more wine? The weasel picked up the empty wine skin. I think you've just about had enough wine this night, he said. Bravd's forehead wrinkled. Gold is gold, he said finally. How can a man with plenty of gold consider himself poor? You're either poor or you're rich. It stands to reason. Rincewind hiccuped. He was finding reason rather difficult to hold on to. Well, he said, what I think is, the point is, well, uh, you know Octiron? The two adventurers nodded. The strange, iridescent metal was almost as highly valued in the lands around the Circle Sea as sapient pear would, and was about as rare. A man who owned a needle made of octiron would never lose his way, since it always pointed to the hub of the disc world. Being acutely sensitive to the disc's magical field, it would also miraculously darn his socks. Well, my point is, you see, that gold also has its sort of magical field, sort of financial wizardry. Echogonomics Rincewind giggled. The weasel stood up and stretched. The sun was well up now, and the city below them was wreathed in mists and full of foul vapours. Also gold, he decided. Even a citizen of Moorpork would at the very point of death desert his treasure to save his skin. Time to move. The little man called Twoflower appeared to be asleep. The weasel looked down at him and shook his head. The city awaits... "'Such as it is,' he said. "'Thank you for a pleasant tale, wizard. "'What will you do now?' "'He eyed the luggage, which immediately backed away and snapped its lid at him. "'Well, there are no ships leaving the city now,' giggled Rincewind. "'I suppose we'll take the coast road to Cherm. "'I've got to look after him, you see. "'But look, I didn't make it up—' "'Sure, sure,' said the weasel soothingly. "'He turned away and swung himself into the saddle of the horse that Braft was holding.' A few moments later, the two heroes were just specks under a cloud of dust, heading down towards the charcoal city. Rincewind stared muzzily at the recumbent tourist. At two recumbent tourists. In his somewhat defenceless state, a stray thought, wandering through the dimensions in search of a mind to harbour it, slid into his brain. Here's another fine mess you've got me into, he moaned, and slumped backwards. Mad, said the weasel. Braved. Galloping along a few feet away, nodded. "'All wizards get like that,' he said. "'It's the quicksilver fumes. Rots their brains. Mushrooms, too.' "'However,' said the brown-clad one, he reached into his tunic and took out a golden disc on a short chain. Bravd raised his eyebrows. "'The wizard said that the little man had some sort of golden disc that told him the time,' said the weasel. "'Arousing your cupidity, little friend?' You always were an expert thief, weasel. "Aye," agreed the weasel modestly. He touched the knob at the disc's rim. It flipped open. The very small demon imprisoned within looked up from its tiny abacus and scowled. "It lacks but 10 minutes to 8 of the clock," it snarled. The lid slammed shut, almost trapping the weasel's fingers. With an oath, the weasel hurled the time-teller far out into the heather, where it possibly hit a stone. Something in any event caused the case to split. There was a vivid octorine flash and a whiff of brimstone as the time being vanished into whatever demonic dimension it called home. What did you do that for? said Bravd, who hadn't been close enough to hear the words. Do what? said the weasel. I didn't do anything. Nothing happened at all. Come on, we're wasting opportunities. Bravd nodded. Together they turned their steeds and galloped towards ancient Ankh, and honest enchantments. The Sending of Eight Prologue The Discworld offers sights far more impressive than those found in universes built by creators with less imagination, but more mechanical aptitude. Although the Disc's sun is but an orbiting moonlet, its prominence is hardly bigger than croquet hoops, this slight drawback must be set against the tremendous sight of great R. Tuin the Turtle, upon whose ancient and meteor-riddled shell the disk ultimately rests. Sometimes, in his slow journey across the shores of infinity, he moves his country-sized head to snap at a passing comet. But perhaps the most impressive sight of all, if only because most brains, when faced with the sheer galactic enormity of R. Tuin, refuse to believe it, is the endless rimfall where the seas of the disk boil ceaselessly over the edge into space. Or perhaps it is the Rimbo, the eight-coloured, world-girdling rainbow that hovers in the mist-laden air over the fall. The eighth colour is Octarine, caused by the scatter effect of strong sunlight on an intense magical field. Or perhaps again, the most magnificent sight is the Hub. There, a spire of green ice, ten miles high, rises through the clouds and supports at its peak the realm of Dun Manifestin, the abode of the Disc Gods. The disc gods themselves, despite the splendor of the world below them, are seldom satisfied. It is embarrassing to know that one is a god of a world that only exists because every improbability curve must have its far end, especially when one can peer into other dimensions at worlds whose creators had more mechanical aptitude than imagination. No wonder, then, that the disc gods spend more time in bickering than in omnicognizance. On this particular day, Blind Eor, by dint of constant vigilance, the chief of the gods, sat with his chin on his hand and looked at the gaming board on the red marble table in front of him. Blind Eor had got his name because where his eye sockets should have been, there were nothing but two areas of blank skin. His eyes, of which he had an impressively large number, led a semi-independent life of their own. Several were currently hovering above the table. The gaming board was a carefully carved map of the disc world, overprinted with squares. A number of beautifully modelled playing pieces were now occupying some of the squares. A human onlooker would, for example, have recognised in two of them the likenesses of Braved and the Weasel. Others represented yet more heroes and champions, of which the disc had a more than adequate supply. Still in the game were Eeyore, Ofla, the Crocodile God, Zephyrus, the God of Slight Breezes, Fate, and the Lady. There was an air of concentration around the board now that the lesser players had been removed from the game. Chance had been an early casualty, running her hero into a full house of armed gnolls, the result of a lucky throw by Offler. And shortly afterwards, Knight had cashed his chips, pleading an appointment with destiny. Several minor deities had drifted up and were kibitzing over the shoulders of the players. Side bets were made that the lady would be the next to leave the board. Her last champion of any standing was now a pinch of potash in the ruins of still smoking Arkmore Pork, and there were hardly any pieces that she could promote to first rank. Blind Eeyore took up the dice box, which was a skull whose various orifices had been stoppered with rubies, and with several of his eyes on the lady, he rolled three fives. She smiled. This was the nature of the lady's eyes. They were bright green, lacking iris or pupil, and they glowed from within. The room was silent as she scrabbled in her box of pieces and from the very bottom produced a couple that she set down on the board with two decisive clicks. The rest of the players, as one god, craned forward to peer at them. A renegade rifford and some sort of clerk, said Offler, the crocodile god, hindered as usual by his tusks. Well really. With one claw he pushed a pile of bone white tokens into the centre of the table. The lady nodded slightly. She picked up the dice-cup and held it as steady as a rock. Yet all the gods could hear the three cubes rattling about inside. And then she sent them bouncing across the table. A six, a three, a five. Something was happening to the five, however. Battered by the chance collision of several billion molecules, the die flipped onto a point, spun gently, and came down a seven. Blind Eo picked up the cube and counted the sides. Come on, he said wearily. Play fair. The Sending of Eight The road from ankh to Cherm is high, white and winding. A thirty-league stretch of potholes and half-buried rocks that spirals around mountains and dips into cool green valleys of citrus trees crosses liana-webbed gorges on creaking rope bridges and is generally more picturesque than useful. Picturesque. That was a new word to Rincewind, the wizard. BMGC, Unseen University, failed. It was one of a number he had picked up since leaving the charred ruins of Ankh-Morpork. Quaint was another one. Picturesque meant, he decided after careful observation of the scenery that inspired Two Flower, to use the word, that the landscape was horribly precipitous. Quaint, when used to describe the occasional village through which they passed, meant fever-ridden and tumble-down. Twoflower was a tourist, the first ever seen on the Discworld. Tourist, Rincewind had decided, meant idiot. As they rode leisurely through the time-scented, bee-humming air, Rincewind pondered on the experiences of the last few days. While the little foreigner was obviously insane, he was also generous and considerably less lethal than half the people the wizard had mixed with in the city. Rincewind rather liked him. Disliking him would be like kicking a puppy. "'Currently, Twoflower was showing a great interest in the theory and practice of magic. "'It all seems, well, rather useless to me,' he said. "'I always thought that, you know, a wizard just said the magic words, and that was that. "'Not all this tedious memorizing." "'Rincewind agreed moodily. "'He tried to explain that magic had indeed once been wild and lawless, "'but had been tamed back in the mists of time by the olden ones "'who had bound it to obey, among other things, the law of conservation of reality.' This demanded that the effort needed to achieve a goal should be the same, regardless of the means used. In practical terms, this meant that, say, creating the illusion of a glass of wine was relatively easy, since it involved merely the subtle shifting of light patterns. On the other hand, lifting a genuine wine glass a few feet in the air, by sheer mental energy, required several hours of systematic preparation, if the wizard wished to prevent the simple principle of leverage flicking his brain out through his ears. He went on to add that some of the ancient magic could still be found in its raw state, recognisable, to the initiated, by the eightfold shape it made in the crystalline structure of space-time. There was the metal octiron, for example, and the gas octogen. Both radiated dangerous amounts of raw enchantment. It is all very depressing, he finished. Depressing? Depressing? Rincewind turned in his saddle and glanced at Twoflower's luggage, which was currently ambling along on its little legs, occasionally snapping its lid at butterflies. He sighed. Rincewind thinks he ought to be able to harness the lightning, said the picture imp, who was observing the passing scene from the tiny doorway of the box slung around Twoflower's neck. He had spent the morning painting picturesque views and quaint scenes for his master, and had been allowed to knock off for a smoke. When I said harness, I didn't mean harness, snapped Rincewind, I meant, well, I just meant that, I don't know, I just can't think of the right words, I just think the world ought to be more sort of organised. That's just fantasy, said Twoflower. I know, that's the trouble, Rincewind sighed again. It was all very well going on about pure logic and how the universe was ruled by logic and the harmony of numbers, but the plain fact of the matter was that the disc was manifestly traversing space on the back of a giant turtle, and the gods had a habit of going round to atheists' houses and smashing their windows. There was a faint sound, hardly louder than the noise of the bees in the rosemary by the road. It had a curiously bony quality, as of rolling skulls or a whirling dice box. Rincewind peered round. There was no one nearby. For some reason that worried him. Then came a slight breeze that grew and went in the space of a few heartbeats. It left the world unchanged, save in a few interesting particulars. There was now, for example, a five-metre-tall mountain troll standing in the road. It was exceptionally angry. This was partly because trolls generally are, in any case but it was exacerbated by the fact that the sudden and instantaneous teleportation from its lair in the Ramarauk Mountains, 3,000 miles away and a 1,000 yards closer to the rim, had raised its internal temperature to a dangerous level, in accordance with the laws of conservation of energy. So it bared its fangs and charged. "'What a strange creature!' Two-Flower remarked. "'Is it dangerous?' "'Only to people!' shouted Rincewind." He drew his sword, and with a smooth overarm throw, completely failed to hit the troll. The blade plunged on into the heather at the side of the track. There was the faintest of sounds, like the rattle of old teeth. The sword struck a boulder concealed in the heather. Concealed, a watcher might have considered, so artfully that a moment before it had not appeared to be there at all. It sprang up like a leaping salmon, and in mid-ricochet plunged deeply into the back of the troll's grey neck. The creature grunted and with one swipe of a claw gouged a wound in the flank of Two Flowers' horse, which screamed and bolted into the trees at the roadside. The troll spun round and made a grab for Rincewind. Then its sluggish nervous system brought it the message that it was dead. It looked surprised for a moment and then toppled over and shattered into gravel. Trolls being silicaceous life forms, their bodies reverted instantly to stone at the moment of death. "'Ah!' thought Rincewind, as his horse reared in terror. "'He hung on desperately as it staggered two-legged across the road, "'and then screaming, turned and galloped into the woods. "'The sound of hoofbeats died away, leaving the air to the hum of bees "'and the occasional rustle of butterfly wings. "'There was another sound, too. "'A strange noise for the bright time of noonday. "'It sounded like dice.' End of CD 2